Well, again, good morning. It is good to be with you again, and uh, I've been trying to get my head straight. Uh, this weekend has, you know, you, you make plans month in advance so that you avoid double and triple booking, and sometimes that doesn't work. And so this weekend, I, I've had, with the, what we do on Sundays, there are five different opportunities for me to speak, and so I'm back and forth, but I'm trusting that God uh, has something to say for us this morning and that he'll speak clearly through me even as my head moves in different directions. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to move according to that end. Father God, we do thank you for this time, and Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that, that if we come to you through faith, Lord, that you will take hold of our lives and walk with us through everything that we face. And that, Lord, regardless of the outcome of our worldly situations, Lord, we know through our faith that we do have victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, God, this morning as we continue our walk through Nehemiah, I pray that you would speak clearly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there's a a popular t-shirt that's out there a lot here recently, and and actually you see it on social media, you see people wearing it, and they... They, they, they take it and they modify it a bunch of different ways, but it's pretty simple. It, it says, keep calm and carry on. A lot of times you'll see it like this, and, and sometimes it'll change. The carry on will change, but always it's keep calm and something. And I, I often wondered where that came from. You know, I like the design. I like what's there. And, and so I, I, I went and looked it up last week to see where exactly this, this finds its origins. And this is what I found. It says, The Ministry of Information was formed by the British government as the department responsible for publicity and propaganda during the Second World War. In late 1939, after the outbreak of the war, the MOI was appointed by the British government to design a number of morale-boosting posters that would be displayed across the British Isles during the testing times that lay ahead. Because nothing makes you feel better as bombs are falling around you than a well-designed poster, right? <laughs> With a bold-colored background, the posters were required to be similar in style and feature the symbolic crown of King George VI along with a simple yet effective font. The first two posters, Your Courage, Your Cheerfulness, Your Resolution Will Bring Us Victory, and Freedom is in Peril, were produced by His Majesty's Stationary Office. These two were posted on public transport and shop windows upon notice boards and boarding houses across Britain. The third and final poster of the set was again very straightforward and to the point. It simply read, Keep Calm and Carry On. The plan in place for this poster was to issue it only upon the invasion of Britain by Germany. As this never happened, the poster was never officially seen by the public. I find that interesting. That the only poster that we have seen that you and I probably know of in any way is this one. Keep calm and carry on. But it actually is the only one of the three that was never released to the public. As a matter of fact, the only reason that we know about it is several years ago, as they were cleaning out an office somewhere, they found 12 of these posters intact in this office. And so they, they of course, as we do in the social media age, begin telling everybody about it, and so now it's this popular thing. But what's interesting to me is I always had heard, as we talked about this, and I'd always thought of this as more of an advancing military thing, right? Like when I think of keep calm, carry on, this seems like something that, that you send to this, 
discouraged and, and, and disenfranchised soldiers on the front. Soldiers that have been fighting and fighting. You know, maybe you take some planes and you sprinkle these leaflets all over the place. And so they pick it up and, and they re- remember that their, their country and they remember their resolve. Keep calm and carry on. That's the way it reads to me. But the fact is that it wasn't for military use. It was for the general public. That here you have this, this public that's been bombed and shelled over and over and over again. And the invasion of the German machine is inevitable. They, they, they know it's going to come, and upon the actual entry of the, in, of the country of the German army, they were to release these posters, keep calm and carry on. It's interesting. Because the implication then is that every man, woman, and child was to be engaged in the battle. Everybody had a part to play. And the truth is that when the opposition comes in on us, when we're surrounded, we have no choice but to prepare ourselves for battle. And much as the the British government was trying to encourage their people, we need reminded, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm. That certainly probably isn't going to happen, but be as calm as you can. Remember the mission. Remember the vision. Remember the kingdom and press on. Keep moving for the good of the crown, for the good of the people, for the good of the kingdom. We see a similar situation as we look to Nehemiah chapter 4 as morale. They're working on the wall and they're trying to get the wall built up. They find themselves, remember they begin the project and they're all excited and they jump in and we look at all the names and we know, spoiler alert, that they do eventually finish the wall. But now we're back into the thick of the story. We've, we've kind of gone from the, the end. These are all the people that helped build the wall. Then they did complete it, but like flashback, this is what happened when they were building the wall. So Nehemiah chapter 4 says this, When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, Jews, Jews in the presence of his associates. In the army of Samaria, in the presence of the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they're building, even a fox climbing up on, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashad heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard by day and by night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is much rubble, so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. 
Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon with the other. And each of the builders wore his suit, his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. So we've got a situation that arises. Nehemiah and the people are, are hard at work. They're excited. Remember, they're exuberant as we look at the last chapter. And they said, yes, let God strengthen our hands for this work. And they go to work on the wall. They begin working the wall. And as tends to happen as they work, new realities come up. And I think we need to look at these, particularly as we pursue the vision that God has for us as a church. First thing that I notice is that opposition exists. Opposition exists. And I mean that in a couple of ways. First, I mean it in this way, that, that we often are, 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 are lulled to sleep in our American reality, in our culture. And we look and we, we, we see opposition and we understand cognitively that it exists, but we think that it exists somewhere over there. That the people that are really dealing with opposition are those that are dealing with, with persecution in other countries. That that's where the opposition exists. But I'm here to tell you today, ladies and gentlemen, that the opposition is here. It is everywhere. The enemy is active in the world. But notice this. That, that they didn't have to go find the opposition. It was just there. So let's think through that for a second. First, we need to understand something. Not everybody is going to be pleased with the work that God does in and through us. Not everyone will be pleased about the work that God does in and through us. Sanballat and company are mad. They are hot. That's what the passage literally means. The passage literally translated is that they were boiling over with anger. That their anger was to the point that it was so hot, that they were so enraged, that they were to the point of needing to act. They are angry. Boiling over with fury. 
And as I read these verses, I find myself asking, but why? What, what is it that Sanballat and his friends are so mad about? What is it that's happening with the people of Israel? What is so bad about them being protected? It's not that all of a sudden they're going to be a, 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 a huge threat to them in massive ways. They're not going to come and take over Samaria. He, they, they even say themselves that they're feeble Jews. What are they concerned about? Why are they all of a sudden so mad with what God is doing and what these Jewish people are doing? Well... There are a few reasons that jump out at me. First, the new work threatened his position in power. Sanballat is governor of the fortified city of Samaria, located just eight miles north of Jerusalem. And the truth is this, that an exposed city was a conquered city. An exposed city was a vulnerable city. An exposed city was a subdued city. Them not having a wall put him in a position of power that he could lord over them, where he could press down upon them, where he could exploit them as he needed. Newly walled Jerusalem would put another city on par with him and possibly another governor that he had to compete with. He would no longer be in sole control of the region. His concern is for himself. Sometimes I worry that as we see the work of God in the lives of others, we find ourselves much like the prodigal son's brother, being jealous of the work that God is doing in the lives of others. And I think that we do that with other churches in the region. We see God doing so and so and such and such with them. And so we begin lobbing insults at the other churches. We begin trying to undercut what, is the, what it is that they're doing. And, and sure, we might sit here and say that we don't do that, but we do it in subtle, not so obvious ways. I worry that sometimes we are the opposition. But it's not about us. That's the lesson we see in Sanballat. It's not about Sanballat. It's not about what he wants, but about what God is doing. The fact is, it's not that Sanballat isn't the king. The king has given a decree. He's given an edict. So Sanballat really doesn't have a choice. It's not about us. It's about the king that we serve. It's not about protecting our power and position, but elevating the name of Jesus first and foremost. Second, this work wasn't for his ultimate benefit. He was jealous. Why wasn't the king doing him these favors? Here he'd been in this city that, that had maintained, it was a protective outpost for, the, for the, the, the rule of the Persian Empire. Why is the king not sending him troops? Why is the king not sending him money and assistance? As a matter of fact, what probably was happening is that the king was exacting a tax from Sambalot. And here the king has the audacity to send a new people down to do a new work. It's the what about me mentality. We need to beware of the what about me mentality. What do I get out of it? Yeah, I know. I know what we're going to do for them, but what do I get? How are you taking care of me? How, 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 am, how am I being watched after? That's what Sanballat's thinking. This work wasn't for his benefit. Finally, it didn't fit into his agenda. Valuable trade routes ran through the region keeping those in power in wealth. 
having another prominent city in the region would undoubtedly have an adverse impact on the economic interest and outlook for Samaria. His will was king. And there are many, not just in this church, but in this world, in this world particularly, that are concerned with their own will and their own interests. And a strong church stands to, in their view, damage that. We must always be willing to say then, as Jesus does, not my will be done, but yours, even when it costs us. Not everyone's going to be pleased about the work God does in and through us. Second thing we need to notice is the opposition had been there all along. The opposition had been living in the land before the work began. They, they met him at the gate. Remember, if we look over at, at chapter 2, when, when Nehemiah arrives, as soon as he gets there and starts doing things, we hear about, in verse 19 of chapter 2, we hear about Sanballat, that he immediately is upset. He's immediately frustrated about what they're doing. He's immediately trying to stir up trouble. They didn't have to go look for opposition. It was always there. We, we don't have to go look for opposition. It will find us. It will find us. Keep doing faithfully what God calls you to do, and, and there will come a time where you find yourself up against it. And sometimes it will come from places that you expect, but sometimes it will come from places that you don't. Note that the opposition didn't change. No, nothing for them changed. They were just living life as they always had. They were content to move on and do things. They just keep things the way that they are. Why do we need to change it? Everything is, was just fine the way that it was. The opposition didn't change. They were responding to that which was changing around them. People were empowered and engaged for a new work that went against the dominant culture of that community people were upset here's something that i think is important for us to understand and please please hear my heart here and hear the truth of the passage this morning satan doesn't need to invent problems he merely needs to exploit or exacerbate existing conditions satan doesn't need to invent problems he merely needs to exploit or exaggerate existing conditions. That's from James Montgomery Boyce. What that means is this. Satan doesn't have to go looking to find opposition. He just preys upon our own insecurities and our own issues that are in our midst, and he blows them up. When God breathes new life into dry bones, it's bound to unearth some skeletons. The opposition had been there all along. And note what the opposition attacks. The opposition will attack our own insecurities. There are some questions that Sanballat brings up as he's talking to his associates, and, and no doubt these questions had been hurled at the people. It talks about the insults. And each of the questions presented is assuming the negative. Sanballat doesn't have to destroy the people to stop the work. 
He just needs to plant enough seeds of doubt that can tear them down. We see this in verse 2. He says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? What they are building, even a climbing fox on it, would break down the stones of their wall. Five different things that are hurled at the people. First, he demeans the people and participants. He demeans their integrity and their abilities. He refers to them with terms used to describe a withering or dying plant. He essentially is saying to them, what are you thinking? You're too weak for this. Who do you think you are? Do you really think that you can get this done? There's no way. Not this people. Not this sad group of people. Second, he demeans the materials. The crumbled remains of the wall and the built burned stones were believed to be cursed and therefore unsuitable for use beyond redemption. That's pretty sad. It's not only, hey, you people, you're worthless, but also the building materials. Don't you know how to build? Don't you know what to choose? You, you picked up these burnt stones. They already fell down. Why would you use a wall that, that didn't hold up the first time? And here you are. You don't even know how to pick the right materials. He demeaned the work. He insinuates that the task is too big. Is the work worth the effort? I find that the hardest part about following God into the future is we are generally pursuing possibilities that others deem impossible. He demeans their God. When he says, are you going to offer sacrifices? One scholar says that this is more accurately translated. Are they going to pray the wall up? Are they going to praise the wall up? Are these people, is their God going to come down and build this wall? Because that's about what's got to happen. Is God going to do this work for them? We're going to put a pin on that one because that's going to end up being real ironic here in a minute. He demeans what will be the ultimate finished product, or at least Tobiah does. Insufficient people working with insufficient supplies with an insufficient God on an impossible work was sure to result in an insufficient product. He talks about the fox climbing up on it. Remember a fox, really delicate, delicate step. That's what he's saying. Even the delicate touch, tap of the fox would knock that wall down. There's nothing to it. The opposition is going to attack our insecurities. Going to find ways to drive wedges of division between us and hurl insults at us that make us question whether or not we can do the work that God's called us to. I gotta be honest, I struggle with this one. I doubt myself daily. I find myself looking at the work that I believe that God has called me to. And I look at the struggles that I'm dealing with and the opposition that does in fact come. And believe me, it comes. And I find myself praying in my office or in the middle of the night at home, God, 
you've got the wrong guy. I can't do it. This work is too big. What do you make a way? If we're honest, each of us in our lives, as we try to pursue God, as we try to pursue the building of our family, as we try to pursue living a righteous life, the devil will attack our insecurities. He doesn't have to look to invent something. He just attacks who we are. But something we need to remember is opposition is almost always a result of success, not of failure. Opposition then can be viewed as a source of encouragement and affirmation. Opposition and ridicule is often the result of fear that it might happen. That's what I hold on to. You have, you have no reason to attack something that's already failing. You just step back and let it go. It's when something is actually being built up. Note that it's all words at the beginning. But as soon as the, the stones start getting laid and stone upon stone goes, they start talking about actual attacks, physical attacks. You don't have to attack a crumbled down, broken down city. It's when good things start happening, when God starts delivering on his promises, when God starts doing what he said that he would do, that people start stepping in and saying, are you sure about that? Are you sure that this isn't you? Are you big enough to take it to the next level? This is too big for you. But the fact is, if God brought you to the midway point, he'll help you finish it out. And even Jesus himself faced opposition. Consider the temptations of the devil to Jesus in the wilderness. They were all meant to cast doubt on the promises of God to the Messiah. They were all meant to cast doubt on whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And essentially the devil over and over again says to him, Are you sure? Like if you, if you, really, if you are really the Son of God, you could just say it to this stone, and it'll, it'll turn into bread. God will provide for you. You really the son of God? You, if the Bible says, if you jump off, you want to throw the Bible at me? I'll throw some Bible at you. You jump off this, this temple here, and the angels will lift you up before you hit the ground. The Bible says that this is all mine. I'm the king of the power of the air, right? You, this is all mine. If you just kneel, take one knee, this will all be yours. We'll complete this task right now. We'll wrap this thing up. Prove it, Jesus Prove it. All of the temptations of Jesus were meant to cast doubt, to dig into what could possibly be seen as an insecurity in the humanity of Jesus. The religious leaders of the time railed against Jesus because of jealousy. His work threatened their positions of power, prominence, and prestige. His work drew people to them that once followed, to him that once followed them. His work began upsetting previously held ideas and moved people in a new direction. And it benefited those that they viewed to be unworthy. 
They killed him for it. Remember, Christ said, the world, if it, if it hates me, you can bet that it's going to hate you. Opposition exists. So what do we do in the face of opposition? Well, we give it to God. Note in verse 4, Nehemiah prays. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own head. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insight in the face of the builders. Note that Nehemiah doesn't return fire. That Nehemiah's response is not to get in Sanballat's face and say, well, you think you know what's going on, Sanballat, but here's what really is happening. Look at the wall. Do you see what we've done already? We're going to finish this work, and there's nothing that you or all of your army can do to stop us. Bring it, Sanballat. Let's go. He doesn't stoop to the level of his attackers. He doesn't insult them. The truth is that returning evil for evil would have only resulted in more evil. I struggle with this one. I'll be honest, I, I, I am pretty, my, my mouth works faster than my brain can process. Sometimes the insult is out before I even know that it was an insult. We see here Nehemiah, though, biting his tongue, and rather than fighting his own battle, he turns to the Lord. Because the truth is, had Nehemiah responded in kind, he would have lost. He was surrounded, he was exposed, and he was leading a a beleaguered people, a tired people, most of them just commoners. Sure, he had had the the officers from the king, but he he was not in a situation that he could have won. So Nehemiah turns to the one who can. 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12 tells us this. Actually, we're going to start in verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic and love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm going to tell you what. I don't want God's face against me. I I don't want to become the oppressor. I don't want to become the one who is doing the evil and have to look over my back, not for the opposition, but for for the Lord. Don't return fire. Give it to God. We need to develop a pattern of prayer. Each of us needs to develop. This is not just a for pastors thing. We need need to develop a pattern of prayer that we're constantly giving the work to God. This is what Nehemiah did. And Nehemiah did what Nehemiah always did. This is what we see throughout the book of Nehemiah, is it not? 
that, that an issue comes up and Nehemiah drops to his knees. Nehemiah, it seems like no sooner does he get up than another issue comes and so he drops to his knees. Nehemiah needs to find some assets and so Nehemiah drops to his knees. Nehemiah needs to find courage so Nehemiah drops to his knees. He was in a pattern of prayer. I think it's interesting. We see the pattern ironically in verse 4 of chapters 1, 2, and 4. It's always verse 4. I don't think there's any significance to that, but kind of interesting. He consistently trusts his vision and work to the God who gave it. Note the content of his prayer, though. He admits the hurt of the insults. Here is our God, for we are despised. Do you think Nehemiah and the people weren't scared? Do you think they weren't dealing with some anxiety and some hurt because everybody hated them? Of course they were. It's the crazy thing, though, about being a living sacrifice is that sometimes you're going to feel the sting of the knife and the burn of the fire. Nehemiah admits the hurt. And he trusts God to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And note, the judgment that he requests isn't because he has been attacked, but because the work of God has been attacked. And it's interesting to me that the curse that, that they proclaimed is the curse he returned. How often is that the case? How often is it the very curse that, that we proclaim to others is the very curse we end up receiving? Think about it. I think it's pretty often. The very thing that we wish upon others is the thing we find ourselves walking into. In our case, however, I'm going to argue that our prayer should be slightly different than Nehemiah's. While I would love to pray imprecatory psalms upon all of my enemies, imprecatory psalms being those that God destroy my enemies. Jesus messed that whole thing up for us. Remember, Jesus forgave his executioners he called us to pray for those who persecute us and to bless those who curse us. Our response then is to pray and to seek ways that we can bless those that stand in opposition. Verse 9 says, We prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Pray it up. Be prepared and get back to work. That's what we see Nehemiah doing. Now, once again, remember I told you to put a pin in, in the, the insult. Are they going to pray the wall up? Isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Nehemiah thought he was going to do? I am, in fact, going to pray this wall up. I'm going to pray until it's done, and then I'm going to pray that God maintains it. The work, in fact, is too big for us. If it is going to prosper, it will be because God has worked. We must pray it up. 
If First Baptist Church is going to become all that God would have it to be, if the vision that has been placed in my and the leadership's hearts and in the hearts and souls of the people of this church, if the church is going to become all that God would have it to be, it will be because God did it in and through us, not because we accomplished it in and of ourselves. I am too small. I am too weak. I am not big enough. But the God that I serve is. If he can raise his son from the grave, he can certainly bring life to us. Develop a pattern of prayer. Give it to God. And don't be discouraged or deterred. You know, work will weary workers. It's a natural consequence. Fatigue will catch up with even the most exciting and noble of projects. There's generally a pattern. People are inspired and engaged and energized at the beginning of a project. They're ready to go. In pastoral terms, we call this the honeymoon. Everybody's excited because there's a new pastor here that's going to do a new thing. And so for a minute, everybody's wanting to do it. Like, tell me what we can do. Tell me how we can do it. And then eventually, they actually start doing it. So inevitably, people start looking and saying, whoa, this is in my church. This is in the church that I grew up in. That is true. That is true. Now, now hear me. I'm not calling anyone anything right now, but I want you to hear me. I have not done anything at First Baptist Church that I do not tell you explicitly that I would do. I have done what I said I would do the way that I said that I would do it. If you want to double check, we have recordings of that first sermon and you can listen to it. And I told you from the outset that it would be painful and that it would be difficult. Change always is. Change always looks great on the front side, but it's difficult once you get into it. But this is the pattern. We're energized at the beginning. And after some time, we start rethinking, renegotiating the contract. It starts getting hard. It doesn't happen as quickly as we wanted it to. So we start pulling back. But those are the moments that we need to be engaged. We need to turn to the Lord. And understand that God himself will do the work. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And that if we're fighting against the work and God is for it, who are we fighting against but God? Doubts will surface from time to time. But we need to be encouraged. We need to be engaged. And we need to pursue the Lord with all that we have. And trust that what he is building in and through us, both individually and corporately, is for his good and glory. The threat of continued attacks is discouraging. While an attack was ill-advised and highly unlikely at the time, Nehemiah and the people were working, they're working with the permission of the king, Artaxerxes, and so an attack on them would be an attack on the king who sanctioned the work. But the people were exposed, and the threat was real, even if unlikely. The truth is it's hard to maintain work when you're constantly looking over your shoulder. So we need to look to the Lord. The God who called them would defend them. Verse 14b, Nehemiah says, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. 
Nehemiah says, hey, remember that God called us to do this and God is going to do it. God is going to build your homes. God is going to build your families. God is going to build this city. God is going to build this community. And he's going to do it, but you need to fight for it. Be ready to do the work. And Joshua, when Joshua takes over, remember God tells him to be strong and of good courage. Today, we need to remember that same promise that Joshua receives, that we are to be strong and of good courage because our God will be with us. Don't be discouraged or deterred. And finally, we need to stay on guard and on mission. We need to be prepared for the attacks that may come. Verse 9, 13, and 16 We see them preparing for the attack. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard by day and night to meet this threat. Verse 13, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posted them by families with their swords and spears and bows. Verse 16, From that day on half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields and bows and armor. We don't have to live as sitting ducks. There will come a time where we do stand up for what we believe in. But we need to do it at the right place, at the right time, in the right way. We'd be wise to arm ourselves, to defend ourselves for the work. And I would argue that as followers of God, the way that we arm ourselves to defend the work is with the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. You can fight against my words. You can fight against my opinions. But if what we are standing on and what we are driving for is the word of God, good luck fighting that. It's not my word, it's his. This is the weapon that the Lord has given us to fight our battles. So be sure that if you're going into battle, if you're fighting against a work that you think God is not for, that this is the weapon that you use. Because it's the only weapon that will stand. We can't stop with half a wall. We must complete the call. We need to suit up and get to work. We need to work with unrelenting determination and focus. Verse 23, we see something interesting that's easy to move past. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor my guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Nehemiah and his men would not rest until the work was completed. I pray that that's true of us. That we will not rest until the work God has for us is completed. That we will suit up with the full armor of God, carrying the sword of the Spirit, and that we would go into battle, that we would face any opposition, whether it comes from within or without, and that we'd be ready to stand for our families, that we would be ready to stand for the building of our community, that we would be willing to stand for the building of the kingdom of God in this place at this time. Opposition is out there. We are surrounded. We are in the minority. It is a post-Christian society. Our vision is that guided by prayer, committed by faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sharing Jesus Christ, we will build the kingdom of God in this community. So we need to keep calm. 
and carry on. This morning as you leave, there will be deacons at the doors to hand one of these cards to you that I encourage you to place it in your Bible and that as you see it, you would be reminded to develop that pattern of prayer, to pray for the work that God is doing in our community, that he would build up the wall, that he would do an amazing work in and through us, that he would, he would bring about his kingdom and his glory in this community. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and grace. I thank you that though our enemies are many, though our enemies are great, God, you are greater still. God, I thank you that it is you who fights our battles, and it is you who will bring the victory. God, I pray that you would help us as we look at the various callings that are on our lives and as we deal with the insecurities that are consistently stirred up within us, God, may we remember that while we are not great enough, God, you are. While we are not big enough, God, you are. So God, we pray that you would work in our midst. That you would give us the resolve to fight for our families. That you would give us the resolve to, re to fight for our schools and for our community. And God, that you would give us the resolve to fight for this, your church. God, I pray that you would raise up from these stones those that would give testament to your greatness and goodness. God, in the face of opposition, help us to keep calm, to look to you and to carry on. God, encourage our hearts today and draw us together and move us forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing in response to God's word.